This podcast deals with themes of murder, drug use, and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Jack Morris. I'm not a journo or a professional podcaster, but I've got a story. A story that's haunted me for 25 years, that's remained unspoken and uninvestigated. But it's time the facts and the fiction are dragged into the sunlight and investigated properly. This story takes place at a remote outcrop of Mount Dandenong called Burke's Lookout, which overlooks Melbourne. You can find it on a map and find directions to it, but equally you could miss the precipice where the official lookout location is marked on the track. Today the lookout itself is used as a reference point for emergency services operations for rope rescues. The idea is that if you get into trouble and can get a call out, Burke's Lookout is the point of reference used to find you. From up here, you can really see Melbourne and just about make out each of the skyscrapers if you know the city well enough. And from the lookout, three huge steel structures and a smaller one up the hill have kept watch over the city since the first one was installed for the 1956 Olympics. These structures are huge and rival the tallest buildings in the city that they watch over. And they're imposing, both when you stand next to them and even more so as the sun sets behind them. Burke's lookout begins at the boundary fence of the tallest tower. They are a marker, instantly recognisable. And they may have been marking something more sinister for the last 20 years. This story actually began more than 300 million years ago, when a great volcano welled up as a cauldron in the crust of the earth in the area that we now know as Alinda, where this tale takes place. From this cauldron, four series of lava flows ran out. One of these flows, full of volcanic ash, reached as far as emerald. After centuries of weathering, these rocks broke down to form the rich soil of the forested ranges. Prior to European settlement, the Wurundjeri people used areas in this region for hunting and gathering food. Although we can never know for sure, it's likely that generations of people lived and died exactly where Annabelle may have taken her last. And death has certainly visited this part of the world more than once. The Kaima airline crash, for example, which took place in 1938, when Australian National Airways Douglas DC-2 Kaima, flying from Adelaide to Melbourne, 
commenced the final approach to Essendon Airport and through heavy fog crashed into the western slopes of Mount Dandenong, killing all 18 people on board instantly. Where exactly did it crash? The very hillside that Annabelle went missing. A decent footy kick would just about cover the distance between the crash site and where the party was. The Kayama has been honoured with the track named after it. That's the track we used to walk into the party that night. That exact track that Annabelle walked 25 years ago, along with every single person at that party. The fact is that that night I was awoken by a scream. A terrified scream by a girl in obvious danger. And I ignored it. I told myself it was nothing and I went back to sleep. No different to a a person now watching domestic violence playing out and doing nothing effectively being complicit in whatever was happening. I knew it was a girl, and I knew that people standing on the side of a cliff don't just scream out for nothing. I was still a bit drunk that night, and after a minute of rationalising to myself why I shouldn't get involved, instead of getting involved, I went back to sleep. I said at the start of this process that this was about solving a potential crime. That's not completely true. It's also just an attempt to try and do something good after 20 years of doing bugger all. I might not have been a genius at 18 years of age, but I wasn't flat out stupid. Here I was sitting on a rock alone with a banging headache and some big problems coming my way if I made the wrong decision. I recall feeling, other than extremely fuzzy, a heap of things at the same time. Firstly, I was worried about Annabelle. Where was she? Then I was confused. How the hell did my stuff end up in her bag? I was feeling guilty. Something bad had gone down last night. I knew it. Whoever screamed like that was terrified, if only for a second. But the biggest emotion I felt, and really the reason I've documented all the facts in this podcast, is that in truth, The overwhelming emotion that I felt was a need for self-preservation. The one thing we were told when we bought those tasers was not to show them off and to keep our mouths shut. I still hadn't joined the dots about what had happened, but one thing I knew for sure was there was an illegal weapon belonging to me and it was in that bag. Worse still, there were 49 others floating around other parts of the Yarra Valley and therefore 49 potentially extremely unhappy guys who might someday get a visit from the cops, should the cops find this one. And as scary as that thought was, it wasn't even the scariest thought I had there up on that bloody rock. If someone's enough of a psycho to import a box of police-issue tasers, what's that person capable of doing to a scrawny kid who still lives with his parents? I was pretty sure that while I didn't know the name of the guy who brought them into the country, he sure as hell knew mine, as he did with the rest of his customers. He insisted on that as a form of insurance. He knew who I was and he could find out where I lived. So while I was desperately trying to process what had happened over the last few hours, including a missing person, possible sexual assault, and way down the scale, someone getting in and out of my car without being noticed, My priority, I'm ashamed to admit, was myself. 
I had to get rid of the bag. I think. Actually, I'm not sure. If whoever put my taser in that bag is nearby, does that mean I need to take the bag to show the cops? Without the taser, of course. Or does it mean that whoever took the taser is some sort of bargaining chip? Like if he's done something bad, he can help his cause by telling the cops what he found. I'm sure the police will ignore the small matter of breaking into a car to get it, especially when they realise this taser can't be purchased in Australia, meaning it was illegally imported. And if there's one, surely there's more. I panicked. I overthought. I underthought. I knew that if I took that bag I could maybe hand it in to the cops, but I also knew the opposite was true. If I left it here, I could never hand it in, and I certainly wasn't coming back here in a hurry. So the decision was made, which I could never walk back from, and that was to take the whole thing. And worse still, by the time I got to work, I'd made another decision. In between serving customers that day, I worked away at another task, a task that required discretion and attention to detail. I slowly cut everything in that bag into little pieces and bit by bit deposited those pieces in separate bins. And as for that bloody taser, I smashed that into a thousand pieces. The great part about living in the bush is the things you find. Up near Burke's lookout on Mount Dandenong, kids grew up playing in the forest and finding hiding spots and shortcuts. That's how this all started. She grew up playing in the bush and finding ways around that nobody else could find. She was a cocky kid, and as she got older soon worked out that she could talk her way out of just about anything. Then came the acting. She used to copy the characters she loved on TV, and in time she started to make up her own, just for fun. She would sometimes stay in character for a couple of days. And as she got older, and boys started to take notice of her, she even started to give fake names. Not just fake names, but entire fake backstories. The great part she found about being attractive is that boys wanted her, and girls wanted to be her. She could bring people into whatever she was thinking. She could relate to them. And she was convincing. It was around this time she turned 17 and she realised that it was usually the boys doing the naughty stuff at school. Very rarely the girls. She watched the stupid boys playing with their cars at lunchtime, trying to break into each other's, using their hands to fix things. So it began. One summer in the middle of tourist season, when she pinched her first purse at one of the cafes in Mount Dandenong. She always made sure there were a group of loud teenage boys around, especially if they looked a bit rough. Perfect cover, and it never failed. But now she's crouched behind a gum tree, looking down on the lookout where she crashed that party the night before. The party she ran from when those fuckwits pointed that lemon candidate at her head and accused her of trying to take his wallet. She had screamed, as that thing could do some damage. She'd even seen it blow the limb off a tree. So she legged it into the bush. Home was just up the hill, but they didn't know that. For all they knew, she was 20 and backpacking around Australia. Probably because that's what she told them. Earlier that night, she'd slipped into a car at the end of the track. 
She got a camera, or something. It was in a weird leather case. But right now, it's the next day, and she's looking down as some kid runs around in a tiz about something. Seems to be texting people. He looks scared. He looks worried. And now he's walking away with her bag.